tune into the Tokyo Games, they are seeing a big budget, big business celebration of the height of human physical achievement. And as you watch someone being crowned fastest man in the world, you might be surprised to hear there were artistic competitions in past games. French Baron Pierre de Coubertin's quasi-utopian vision for a modern Olympiad was not only that men would compete for their country in sport instead of war, but that artistic achievement should also be celebrated. There were a number of games of competitions in art, literature, music, sculpture, and even architecture. In 1928, Jan Wills won a medal for designing the stadium that most of the games were actually held in. In 1932, Joseph Suk, noted Czech composer and son-in-law to Antonin Dvorak, won a silver medal for his march into a new life, which you're hearing now. The Olympics got rid of these competitions in the 1950s for the incredible reason that these artists and composers, etc., were professionals, and therefore, these events went against the spirit of amateur competition. Even more curious, none of these medalists are currently listed in the official International Olympic Committee Games database. All these moments are meant to be lost in time, it appears, like tears in rain. Hello everyone, I'm Jonathan Gressel. Welcome to Culture Monster, the podcast that devours the arts. Thanks for listening. There are, of course, a number of similarities between Olympic athletes and those whose vocation is music or dance. Lots of intense training, large competitive moments with life-changing consequences, and the ever-important role of a little luck at the right time. There was the famous incident at the Salt Lake Games where Australian speed skater Stephen Bradbury took home a gold medal in the 1,000 meter short track after all of his competitors crashed out in the last 50 meters of the race. Hard work, luck, and serendipity are all features of the career of violist Nick Poulos, and he tells a few stories illuminating those aspects of his career a bit later. But first, a Culture Monster Bite of the Day. Culture Monster recommends a new novel from the University of Calgary Press titled Unlocking, written by recent Lieutenant Governor Emerging Artists Award winner Amy LeBlanc. Unlocking is a story which brings to life small-town Alberta with a community filled with secrets and possible revelations. Protagonist Louise Till has inherited a hardware store and created a collection of her customers' keys, which just sit around, unused, until they don't. Author Amy LeBlanc talked to me about the long creative process involved in the book's creation. Unlocking originally began as a very different book. Uh, the very first draft of it, it was about the same length, but it was a book called Key Figures. And it was about a man named Ed instead of Lou. He was the one who was going through a divorce. He was cutting keys. And what happened with this book is the longer I spent with it, the more I returned to it, the more I realized that Ed was a character I just didn't 
like and I didn't want to spend any more time with. And I had a moment where I realized that this story could be so much more interesting if I could turn it into this narrative about female friendship and about secrets and blackmail in a very different kind of way from what Ed would have allowed me to do. And it's interesting because I can't even think of a first moment when the idea for this book came to me. The first draft of this book was written in a manuscript course at U of C about five years ago. And I kind of just fell into the story. I've always loved looking at small town life. I've always loved reading a lot of Alice Munro, different novels that I love. A lot of them have been set in small towns because it's just such a rich space for looking at things like secrets. But I can't think of an exact moment where this book and the kind of structure of the book fully came to be. It's just been with me for so long that it's kind of part of me at this point. And I feel like it's always existed, even though I know that's not possible. But it's been so fun over the last five years to write this story in different ways and to return to it over and over to finally end up at what I think is the final iteration, I hope, since it's been published. But the same way with anything that gets published, there's always pieces that you would change. I think if I were to write this book 10 years from now, I would write it very differently, the same way that I've written it differently than I did five years ago. So I think that's just part of part of writing and part of creative practice is always having these ideas that are shifting and this practice that's shifting to end up with a completely different product than you might have at a different time in your life. I also have a special treat for Culture Monster fans, a giveaway, a copy of this new book unlocking for yourself. Just take a look at Culture Monster on social media. That is Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for your chance to win. Supporters on buymeacoffee.com slash culturemonster will get bonus entries. If that weren't enough to whet your appetite, stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear an exclusive excerpt of Unlocking, read by author Amy LeBlanc herself. But first, life with a viola. Spending your professional life with a 400-year-old wooden sculpture is not for everyone. But Nick Poulos wouldn't have it any other way. He has had a remarkable career on stage as a concerto soloist, chamber musician, and orchestral player in the UK, Switzerland, and, of course, his native Canada, where he was a founding member of the National Arts Centre Orchestra and served as principal viola of the Edmonton Symphony for many years. He left Edmonton for a notable career as a teacher and pedagogue, working with the Calgary Youth Orchestra, the Mount Royal Conservatory Strings, and inspiring a generation of young violists. He joined me to reminisce about various parts of his career. And Nick Poulos joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. You grew up in Calgary and have made music around the world, really. Did music come to you quite early in life? Was there something very early that told you that that music was going to be a big part of your life? No, not really. Uh, In fact, it never became a part of my life. Uh, Like, I came into it really late. I I started playing the violin, like my parents, my my dad had a was a basically a restaurant owner at a restaurant coffee shop more in downtown. I grew up in Edmonton mostly. I was born in Calgary, and then returned to Calgary. I left when I was about 
two, I guess. And we moved back to Calgary in the late 80s. I took a job at Mount Royal University. I got interested in playing the violin because we had a boarder in the basement. She was in her 20s, and I was about five, five or six. And she um, she'd play the violin for me. I'd say I got a crush on her. And I had this plan that if I learned the violin, she'd marry me at some point. And that's basically the truth. That's how I, I kind of asked for violin lessons so that I could secretly learn to become a good violin player and she would, you know, we could get married. I have no idea what kind of student I was, but all I have um, in my, in my, I had in my office, I had a diploma up on the wall, which was the diploma I had when I went to university. And that was a grade three Toronto Conservatory violin exam. And that's, kind of what my level was at. And I had, in about seven years, I had five really good teachers. And I must have, they just must have, you know, I don't think I was interested. I think what happened was uh, attracts people to an instrument is the sound. I mean, everybody, say, they all say that, you know, or they, they love the sound of their voice. They love the sound of the violin. I've heard great artists say that. Why do you, people say, why do you keep playing your, you know, 75 years old, because I love the sound of the violin, or I love the sound of my voice, or uh, I love the sound of the piano. I've heard, what what happens with the violin? You love the sound of the violin, you start playing it, it sounds crappy. First of all, you get a crappy instrument when you're a little kid, and I have very strange hearing. I never passed a exams that you get at university, ear, ear tests. I, I cannot pass those. I couldn't tell if a pitch was moving up or down. I don't hear sounds that way. I can't remember sounds either. I have a really funny thing about remembering sounds. It's, uh, like I never could play anything from memory, even when I was playing concertos. But I do have a very sensitive, acute hearing when it comes to uh, microsounds. So I would say scratching and scraping noises like that. Distortions that you get, for instance, if you're not bowing freely, you get these you know terrible distortions, and I, I think that really affected me, and I didn't like. So I had five really good teachers, and by but by the time I got to junior high school, I just quit. I never I never won anything in the festivals. I was a, a loser as far as I was concerned. This wasn't you know so so in junior high school. Toward the end of junior, my years in junior high school, I, I taught myself to play the piano, and I played in a rock and roll band for about four years. And that was just so much fun. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And when I finally stopped doing that, I was going to go to university, and I was in psychology. Took psychology my first year. And I was, that's what I was going to do, because uh, my godfather who was a is, is still alive, <laughs> He's still do, doing stuff. He's he's probably a charlatan amongst psychologists, but he's he still uh, publishes and used to have these tapes that you'd put under your pillow and listen to tape recorder and it would cure your smoking habits. Or I thought that was cool. So I was in psychology my first year of university. When you first go to university, the, the clubs try to sign you up. And... Like I had an image of myself, I was going to join the chess club and I could see my picture in the yearbook and it would say, you know, my name and then it would say interest, it would be chess club. And I said, okay, that would be like, make me kind of an intellectual guy. 
another thing was I said, okay, I'll, I'll join a fraternity because that's a real cool thing to do. That's what happened, you know, it eventually happened. I joined. A, I got got kicked out because I, I, I was I didn't like I didn't like what they did in the fraternity. But and I said it to the wrong people, so they kicked me out of the fraternity. And then, but that was that first week. They they had a big display room in the students' union building, and it was all different clubs, like the radio club and the I don't know, rifle club, archery club. I remember looking across the room at one of the tables was this lovely. She was about twenty. She was she was a really pretty young woman, and I went over there. What is she? What club is she at? And, and it was the University Symphony. I started chatting chatting with her, and I said, "Okay, uh, I play the violin." Uh, uh, she said, "Well, you should. You know, do you want to come to some come to one of our rehearsals?" So yeah, and I, I said, "Well, all the girls are going to look like you." Yeah, of course I'm going to. That's a really about a shallow uh, way of getting into music. I could only play one piece on the violin, and I take my violin out once every six months, and I play a piece in one of the Suzuki books. It was in, I think, book two of Suzuki, and that's the only piece I could play. So I thought, well, after I signed up, I, I should maybe take some lessons and sort of brush up my skills. <laughs> like, they were, they were non-existent. I had no idea. So I asked some people I knew, and they recommended Randall Sheen. There's a big competition in Edmonton named after him. I remember going down and having a, my first lesson and playing for him. And I remember playing a piece, of, it's a very simple piece, and it started in D minor on a D. And when I ended the piece, which was about two minutes later, I had modulated, and I now was playing E flat. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, he had a knack of encouraging people. He said, just a minute. He said, this is, I, I can't believe this. And he went and he got his wife. And he said, Vera. And she was a pianist and a violinist. She played at one time in the Eminent Symphony. And she taught piano in, in the studios that they had downtown White Avenue in Edmonton. And uh, he said, you got to hear this kid. This kid is as good as Bobby Close. Now, Bobby Close is a legend in Edmonton. He's a legend in other places. Evidently, when he sent a, an audition tape to Indiana University, people thought it was a joke and it was Heifetz sending in an audition tape. I mean, he's an amazing violinist. He, he was freakishly good. He was wonderful. I, I knew who he was, but he went to the same high school as me. So he was kind of an interesting character. He drove fast cars and he was good-looking, good kind of had James Dean moody kind of a look. So I, I didn't know. I thought, oh, I'm that good. I didn't know that. I was going to university, okay? So I started practicing. I got, I got, I went overboard. And all I wanted to do was just be good, 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 good at playing the violin so I could play the university symphony. I tend to um, overdo things when I'm doing things. And I was practicing eight, ten hours a day while I was going to university. I had access to the studios, which were actually part uh, shared with the Yardbird Suite, the jazz club, which was on White Avenue at that time. So I spent a lot of time practicing evenings in, in that jazz club because there was no jazz going on. It would only go on on weekends. So I had a fantastic place to play and practice. I used to practice till one in the morning. I practiced all the time. People say that they remember where they were when they heard John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I was practicing. 
Somebody looked up the, on, the, on, the, on the room and said, hey, Poulos, hey, just stop for a minute. Have you heard the news? I said, no. I, I had no inkling, though, that I wanted to have a career in music. I just wanted to get good enough to play in the orchestra, have a good time. Convocation Hall is a beautiful concert hall. It's still, still there. And I remember one night wandering in, to, in there, and it was around December. I don't know why I was in the building, but I, I walked upstairs where, where the organ was, and they were rehearsing on the stage. And it was a string group, and they were playing uh, Corelli, uh, the, the G minor uh, concerto girls, the Christmas concerto. And I remember sitting there and all of a sudden just completely being swept away having never had that experience before of being truly moved you know there was nothing else at that moment that it was the most important thing i'd ever kind of experienced it was it was wonderful i still remember what it was like and how thrilling it was and and i at that that time i said i'm going to this is what i want to do so i started practicing to take a grade 8 exam uh, which was the requirement for a new bachelor of music program. I barely passed the grade eight exam. Uh, I remember some of the pieces were just too hard for me, but I passed and they needed bodies. So I was accepted. So that's how I started. And then I had the great, great good fortune that in the program, there were, there were only five string players, but four of them were amazing players. They were amazing string players. And they'd all come to work with Tom Ralston, uh, who was the string instructor, uh, the violin instructor. Bob, Bobby Close was there and a couple other people. So I thought that was the standard. So I was totally ashamed of my playing. And I, I would go out of my way to find places where nobody could hear me practice because I was just embarrassed. And that was one of the best things that I learned to do, find, uh, be isolated. And so when I started practicing, um, and my way of practicing was I was inspired by these players. I try to sound like them. And if I could sound like them, because my memory is so poor, I would forget the next day. What I started doing was as soon as I figured out how to get something to sound, I'd work backwards and figure out how I did it so I could repeat it. The first year I was in music, I could not play the Bach E major violin concerto, the first movement. It was too difficult. And that's a standard thing. I've had kids who are, you know, been playing five years who can play it. And Tom Ralston suggested I play the viola. And I didn't know that was like, oh, that's because you can't play the violin. I, I said, okay, sure. And I, I bored a viola, immediately tore, tore the ligaments in my index finger. So I had to have an operation. In those days, they didn't have microsurgery techniques. So I was in hospital for two days because it, I could only bend it. it. It was interesting. Two things I could do. I couldn't play in tune. I couldn't play rhythmically, but I could, I could vibrate. What, what I, I don't know how I learned to do that. And I could play spiccato, which is very difficult for a lot of string players to do. Pitch-wise. I played out of tune all the time. I, I, I had to figure out my own way of playing in tune. Rhythmically, uh, I read a book. I was playing Brandenburg Six with a with a, the, the, one of the other players who was a wonderful viola player. Struggling with with the rhythm with rhythms like little 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 little. It's got all these sixteenth notes, and I just couldn't play them in time. And I read this book called The Rhythmic Structure of Music by Cooper. 
and Meyer. It explained the connection to me between pitch and rhythm, which I'd never seen before. Rhythm, rhythms themselves portrayed on the page are not really truly representative of what they sound like. And the example I always use, when Suzuki kids learn to play Twinkle, they go da 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 Okay. I say, okay. So there's six notes there, four sixteenths and two eighths. And I say, how are they grouped? Like sound-wise. And everybody says four and two. And they're not. It's five and one. And if you play four and two, it's screwing up your brain. Left, right brain's going all screwed up. So you're not really playing what sounds, what should sound. You're playing what you see. And I started to realize that the Brandenburg that I was playing, it wasn't, it was, I was trying to play sixes. Okay. I try to play sixes because that's what it looked like on the page. What I realized I had to do was move the bat, the, the, the bow back and forth in a nice rhythmical way, just back and forth, and let the, the pitches um, uh, create the groupings rather than force myself to do the groupings because you don't have to do that. I, I just want to go back to the, to the viola thing for a moment. So you trusted Tom Rolston when he suggested the viola. Was playing the viola, were you drawn to it immediately after you started? What happened was, the minute I switched to viola, it's certainly hard to explain in words, but there's a dramatic shift when I started playing the viola. That changed my outlook, and I had a voice. What happened then was, so 60, I'm trying to remember the years, about six, roughly 63, I was struggling on the violin. A year later, I was in the National Youth Orchestra, and I was playing semi-professionally in the Edmonton Symphony, viola. And I still can hardly read the clef, by the way. You mentioned Tom Ralston, who uh, is so beloved by so many. I mean, could you just talk a little bit about your memories of him or what made him uh, quite an artist and a teacher? It took me a long time to figure out Tom. There was something about him I couldn't relate to. He was He's one of the few people, I think, I've ever met who did not look at things in terms of right and wrong or black and white. There was always the possibilities. Tom did not judge people. It was really interesting. I, I could not get over how somebody would pl play and they would just play really crappy. And he would say, wow, that's great. Now, if you just do this, you know, like, and he seemed to mean it, though. It didn't seem like he was trying to fool that person. He was, you know, really enthused about that person. And it took me a long time to realize he was that. He was like that. He, he really didn't think in, in terms of, he was so creative that way, but and also a very natural violinist. And I remember when I asked, would ask him certain questions about how he did things, and then I'd, I'd figure it out, and I explained it to him, then it would screw him up. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's, it was funny. Tom also, he, he had the ability to pick up any instrument and, and make it sound good which means you have to adjust to it. And string instruments, if you're say, comparing a, an old Italian instrument to a newer you know, Asian instrument or something like that, they really respond differently. And within 30 seconds or so, he could pick, and he, I remember he, the first time he played this viola that I, uh, I discovered in, in Switzerland when I was working there. It was made in the 1500s. And n nobody hardly ever gets to play an instrument 
like that. And they respond differently. And I remember him playing it, whereas it took me three or four months getting used to it. He was able to get a beautiful sound out of it in about a minute. So he was wonderful that way. His coaching sessions were also interesting. He spent a lot more time with the pianist sometimes than with the string player. And that was that was an, an eye-opener. I'll always remember that. It's not all about the soloist. It's about the duo. How did you end up moving out of university and into the professional world then? After university, my wife and I got married. We went to, to England. I felt I needed to study more. And I also felt the need to learn the basics, fundamentals. I started realizing that Tom Ralston and the teachers I had up until then did not really go into the nitty gritty of just basic fundamentals. How do you put the bow in your hand? How do you conceptualize the left hand? That was a that was something like I, I, I didn't even know I didn't not conceptualizing the left hand very well. I didn't realize that. So I went to England on a scholarship and that was 1965-66. Teacher he was a violin teacher, in fact, uh, but I knew about him. He was he's from Winnipeg, but he accent. He was one of the, the leaders of uh, orchestras there, and he had taught a lot of concert masters. He's a wonderful teacher. And I had a few not that many lessons, but it completely made made me change my the way I looked at things. He we gave me uh, some studies that I had done when I was uh, nine years old, ten years old. We worked on those. When I came back, there was no work because I was playing the symphony, but it's still with a part-time orchestra. So that was okay, playing the symphony in the section. And then uh, I, I decided to, I was getting kind of old, but I decided to try out for the National Youth Orchestra again. I got a principal job. And from there, I made connections that led to me getting a position with National Arts Center Orchestra. And that was my first real professional job. And the year before, by the way, I was working at a record store downtown Edmonton. And I was, they'd written, you know, they'd written me up in the newspaper when I went away to study. They say, these students are going to go away and embark on a career. And I am, here I am um, working at the record store. And it was like in December one day. And I'm, the boss says, Nick, would you go out and shovel the snow off the sidewalk? <laughs> So I'm shoveling the snow off the sidewalk, and the bus stops on Jasper Avenue. And I look at the Jasper, and it's one of my mother's friends who's like a Greek gossip. He's going to tell the whole community that you know Nick Poulos, a famous musician, young famous musician, is shoveling the snow on Jasper Avenue. So whenever I had to do it again, I would wear my toque and I pull it over my face and look through, look through the webbing so nobody could see me. Well, the National Youth Orchestra then led to my principal, the principal job in Edmonton. About the National Youth Center Orchestra, what was it like there, starting a brand new thing with Mario Bernardi and the other, the other players? What did that feel like? Was this something that people were very excited about very early on? They spent the better part of a year looking for players. Mainly, uh, the string players especially were mainly young, younger. And there, there were players that I knew from the National Youth Orchestra. Um, I, I remember it vividly because it was my first real job playing. Bernardi was young and not, I'd say, entirely confident when you know, when I look back about it and I hear him talking about it when he'd been interviewed on CBC and things like that. And he didn't know how to handle Hans Graf, for instance, who I think succeeded Bernardi, was a wonderful 
person in, in a way that he could handle. He played the orchestra. He, he, the orchestra was his instrument. And if something was wrong, he'd often blame himself. He'd say, I can do that better. Now, Bernardi never did that. And Bernardi had this conducting technique. The guy lo loved and breathed music. He had a body that didn't work. So when he conducted, he started to tend to bounce up and down. And you see out of the corner of your eye, we saw him like, like this. You would try to, well, how would you know where to play? It was really strange. So I remember when we did a, a tour with the Calgary Philharmonic, I remember playing Carnegie Hall and being terrified. You couldn't look at him because if you did, if you, you'd want to play, you'd have to keep fighting the impulse to play. There was a lot of political strife, and it was mostly directed at Bernardi. We had like something like 17 rehearsals for the first concert. Uh, we played the uh, Coffee of Classical Symphony, sing a Beethoven Symphony, Maria Daskin, which Bernardi did beautifully. I remember him saying, that's a really difficult piece of classical symphony to the viola section and just staring at us. And there's five of us. And he says, none of you is indispensable. You can, you can, I can throw you out right now. He was really mean. It was really interesting because he was a bully. And the way you bully a person is you bully back. And I, I could do that with humor. Uh, at one particular time, I got really ticked off at him. I was sitting, they were rotating and I was sitting in the front desk. And th then you can talk to the conductor. If you're in, in a section, you don't talk to the conductor. We were doing, um, I think it was Easter Oratorio. It's got uh, Obo de Mores in it. And we were doing that and it was in April or something. And they'd hired two Obo de Mora players from Toronto to fly in and play. The morning they flew into the rehearsal that we were, the first rehearsal they were at, there was a blizzard and they came in late. And as soon as they came in, they're taking their coats off and they start, starts on the arias that they're in. And they're playing all out of tune and he starts on their case. And I remember him turning to the personnel manager with a trumpet player in the orchestra and said, I thought that you, that you were going to hire the best players available. He says, how can you play? You're not, this isn't in tune. And the instruments aren't even warmed up. I mean, it was, it, it was bad. And I'm sitting in the front desk and I'm thinking, well, okay. And he says at one point, and that was my, an opening. He says at one point, he said, I'm sure. And he had a way of saying things that was not very classy. He sounded like he was on the street, kind of a punk almost. He said, I'm sure in those days was the primitive instruments they were playing. They play a lot better in tune than you guys are playing right now. And I put my hand, and he looked down, you know, without thinking. He said, yes. And I said, yes, but in those days, they didn't have conductors. And there was dead silence. He started to turn red, and then the whole orchestra broke out laughing, and he, just, he laughed. And from then on, he was like a friend. When I resigned from the orchestra, the principal, he, he actually said to me, I hope you're not leaving the orchestra because of something I've said. He took me at a rehearsal and he said, I hear you going, congratulations. I hope it's nothing I've done, something that I've said that has you know, made you want to leave the orchestra. It was really interesting. There were some wonderful players. So after a, a, a while, then you ended up saying you're going to leave Ottawa and come to Edmonton? When was that? That was the first year. The, the principal position in Edmonton came open. The woman who had the job was an amazing Australian viola player. When she left, she went to, to Holland to live, and she married David Zinman, 
she was a fantastic player. They offered me the position towards the end of the, that first year. The conductor had heard me play, had heard things I've done, and felt I'd be a good fit. And that's kind of one of the ways they did things in those days. It wasn't the audition process; it wasn't as organized as it is nowadays. We we did a, a recording that was a, a very successful pop recording in Edmonton. The uh, it was, I think, the biggest selling pop album album of 1972 was uh, Poco Harum and the Edmonton Symphony. It made all of us. We didn't get money from that, but because it made Edmonton so well known, the symphony, we had a name that, and we did all these specials with Tony Bennett, Ray Charles, Henry Mancini. We we did 57 of them or something, and they paid fortune. And it was always with the Edmonton Symphony and their TV shows. And we got huge residuals. The contracts were amazing. And Lawrence got the thing going, but he conducted on the Proko Harum album. But he did not want his name on the album. So you see somebody conducting uh, on the album cover, and it's him. But you, they don't put his name on because he didn't want his name. He didn't want to be associated. With, it never had been done before. This kind of thing where a symphony orchestra was playing with a rock group. Did the Edmonton Symphony seem like a, you know, a young orchestra at that time? And what, you know, playing concerts in the Jubilee, were the audiences, you know, not wanting to listen to anything other than Tchaikovsky? Well, yeah, it was certainly a young orchestra, and there were people in it who were strong. There was a core. That's what they usually do. They form a core. I think the core had seventeen players. So all the wind principals, all the wind players, and the front desk players of the strings. There'd be more than that, maybe, I don't know, 23 or something. And that would be a core orchestra. And then they supplement it was, so we'd have a, a contract. And the amount of money I was making was about the same as I'd be making in Ottawa. But the people in the section might make a fifth of that because they'd only, only be, they wouldn't be a core player. And we did school concerts and things like that. And they would only use it. And we had a contract which paid us, a, a, I guess, a weekly, not a weekly, a per service fee that was greater than what extras would get. Lawrence built it up. And then I think, you know, like all orchestras, it's like a, like a marriage. If, if you sort of get as much out of that relationship as you can, and it's time to move on. And he, I think he moved on at the right time. They had conductors in Edmonton that didn't that just stuck stayed too long, and and people hated going to work. They get sick. The, uh, I remember uh, the principal soon player in Edmonton would was gone for a month at a time. He couldn't stand he, the work conditions were just when people talk about it being toxic. I know what that means. People are very unhappy. You have a music director who's telling you what to do, not asking you not and who who corrects always correcting which is which is something that i, I really don't like doing I, I i'm teaching or conducting when i've conducted student orchestras i do not like to correct anything i suggest if something's not working i'll say um violas you know who who might just sound terribly out of time i say could you hear what the, the cellos are doing here just listen to them when you're playing and that that even if it doesn't really matter, it gets they, they play better. They focus, you know. It's it, you you can do it that way. You have to 
it's easier to correct. And sometimes I will correct something. I correct something. But we've had conductors who didn't do nothing but correct. Victor Felbro was just great. He'd go in and it, everything, he thinks would be good. Can you just do this this way, perhaps? Think about doing this or uh, those conductors. Bernardi was a bit of a, more of a dictator. He, he, and I think it was partly insecurity. And so the, how, how long were you playing principal in the Edmonton Symphony for then? Um, from 1970 to 1988. So 18 and then years. you decided to move on. Well, yeah, I just got a call one night. And my, my wife and I had to talk about it. It was a real big move. Would you want to come? They, they, they wanted a conductor for the Calgary Youth, or, uh, Calgary Youth Orchestra. And I had never really, I, I took some conducting classes at university, but I had really not done much conducting. I had done some at Banff, like string orchestras and stuff. They wanted me to do that and teach. And I took a sabbatical, or no, not a sabbatical, a year off, my symphony job. Tried it. The move down here was very tough. My wife, wonderful teacher, she could not find. She didn't have a job. She was writing curriculum, and again, and I've never liked conducting. Conducted the Calgary Youth Orchestra through the international tours. I, I loved working with younger kids, junior high school kids, and I had really good kids. One time, I had in one year, I had twelve kids who are who now are playing in professional orchestras, Cleveland, Helsinki, stuff like that, and I learned a lot working with. 12, 13-year-olds. Arnold Choi was one of the kids in the orchestra and his sister. And there were these kids like that. I had two students who were principal violists of the National Youth Orchestra when they were 14, and they played in that orchestra. And I was mentioning this to my wife the other day, that one of the most happy moments I've ever experienced in teaching was when I was working with one particular young group. I was late getting to the rehearsal. I, I had a meeting, I can't remember, and I came down the hall, and I was about 10 minutes late, and as I came down the hall, I heard music, and they were rehearsing on their own. And that was the, the biggest, one of the biggest rewards I've ever had. You know, they were 12, 13, and they were, they were making music by themselves. It was so thrilling. I was asked to conduct Calgary Philharmonic when I first came here, and I, I tried to get out of it. I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it. It was a, it was a Pops concert, and they, they were desperate. They could not find anybody. I mean, they were so desperate, they were asking me. And I didn't want to do it. And I remember seeking advice from some of my friends. And they said, oh, Nick, do it. It was the worst experience of my life. First of all, I don't like telling people what to do. Secondly, if you're working with a professional orchestra, you can't conduct on the beat. I never had that knack. I'd try to get out of the way when I was conducting. I'd invite these people to conduct these young kids. One particular time, he had them play without a conductor. And that got me thinking, and I started doing that more often. So we would rehearse together, work things out, and then I'd just step away and let them play. And I I didn't want to feel that I was telling them what to do. They just played. A lot of kids say that's what kept them going were Friday afternoons when we would rehearse. They look forward to that because that was something they got a lot of pleasure from. We all did. We had a lot of fun. So, so the, the the idea of conductor is full of ego. That is not that is not your style. Well, it's not so much ego. It's I think it's having a very clear idea at that time of how you want something to be. The other thing is the experience I've had. I, I think I honestly could say I've played under less than half dozen conductors that I thought were real conductors. Were really con- what conductors can do. One of them was Hans Graf here. 
In terms of orchestral um, sound or attitude, I mean, how different did you find playing in Europe versus playing in Canada in terms of what the orchestra did or, or how they responded to things? In Edmonton, you kind of became friends with the conductor, but it was, it was small and, and cozy. So the conductor would have us over for drinks and stuff. Lawrence Leonard used to stand in the wings after every concert and thank everybody as they were walking off the stage. Ottawa was not a family. It was kind of scary. Bernardi scared people, and there was a lot of intimidation. In Switzerland, the Swiss orchestra I was in was made up of a lot of stars, and they had a contract that was absolutely amazing. Third week I was there, I got asked if I wanted a part in a chamber festival in the Philippines. Okay. And it was like two weeks long. And I knew the people, like they're a really famous uh, keyboard player. And I knew the the violinist is a very famous violinist, time Alberto Lisi. And I'd be playing piano quartets with these people. And well, I said, well, I can't do that because I've I've got this job here. So they have to let you out. What you could do, I could have done. And I did it on some occasions. You hire somebody to replace you, a sub. They have a sub list. And you pay them less than you're making. So you can actually make money. You still get paid by the orchestra something, somewhat. The running of the, the orchestra is also worth mentioning. The Edmund Symphony, which had a core of 55 players, they had like 30 people in the office. When I went to Switzerland, there were, there were actually two orchestras under one umbrella. The symphony orchestra that Moshe Atzman conducted, and then the radio orchestra that had a different schedule. And they were totally different musicians. There was no sharing of the musicians. Two, two totally different schedules. The recording schedules would have to be set a certain way. And occasionally we did live concerts too. Uh, so they kind of took that job to make quite a bit of money, but you could take time off and do other things. Completely different dynamics than any orchestra I've ever been in. The work schedule was really strange by what the recording engineers set out. So if they wanted to record 10 minutes of something, you go there after, it was, we had morning and evening rehearsals mostly. 10, you'd be there for 15 minutes and they send you home sometimes because they got the music they wanted on tape. The Royal Philharmonic, on the other hand, was a huge organization. It's run by the players. The board of directors were the players. I knew a few, few of the players from the um, Royal Academy. That whole part of my life where I I played in the Royal Philharmonic, then I got this job in Switzerland, uh, was all coincidental. When I got to London, we quickly realized we were not going to have enough money. I phoned up the personnel manager of the uh, Royal Philharmonic one day, and I said, I'm a Canadian viola player. I'm looking for work. Can you keep me in mind? He said, tell me about your background. The minute I said that I had done the recording with Proko Harum, he said, you were in that recording? I said, yeah, I played some, you know, I had some solos on it. He said, okay, that's great. That's a great reference. And they hired me. They started hiring me for extra work. I'm doing freelancing, playing these London gigs, Royal Albert Hall and all the, you know, places like that was the, the Royal Philharmonic. They asked if I want to do a European tour. And that was to Switzerland, Austria, and Berlin. 17-day tour, and I think we did 15 different places. I had a plan, though. My plan was that I would, I would look around for a regular job that would pay me. We're doing tours, and we're, one of the third place we were at was in Bern, Switzerland. And I, and I see a poster for the Royal Philharmonic, and I, I used to tear them, some of them down, keep them for souvenirs. And beside it was an adver- advertisement for the Bern Philharmonic doing a concert the very same night. 
I thought, okay, what I'll do is after the concert that we play, I'm going to go over to that church, the, the area where they're playing, and I'm going to look at the pubs and see if I can find a musician, look for musicians. And I can ask them about work in Switzerland. Like really kind of naive, stupid idea. I did that. And sure enough, I walked into a pub and there's five or six people in tails. And I went up and introduced myself and they got talking. And yeah, they're from the Bern uh, Orchestra. And I said, are there any jobs in Bern? And they said, yeah, there are. There are. But uh, there's one in Basel. And that, that's the third highest paying job in Europe. And they're looking for a viola player. Yeah, I found out about a job. So the next morning, I phoned the office. I have to go through an operator at the hotel to make a long distance call from Bern to Basel. It almost, they're, they're waiting, they're calling me for the bus. They say, come on, pull, it's time to get, you know, and I'm waiting. And just as I'm going to walk out the door, I get a call from Basel. I said, yeah, we'd be glad to, to hear you play. And I went to Basel. I went to the, what I thought was the wrong place, but it was so small. Got lost. Totally missed the audition. And it was, it was the right place. I finally got a hold of this Dr. Ziegler on the telephone. Usually I'm not like this, but I, I said, I, I got lost. I apologize, but I've come all this way and I insist on playing for somebody. Guy comes and picks me up. Got this like 1948 Ford Coupe Black. Really neat old car. He drives me out into the country. So I go to this big time, nice, beautiful house in the country. And I start playing stuff for him. It's not going well because I didn't bring any music. I wasn't even thinking this would even happen. So I'm playing along. This is it. I'm, I'm really screwed this up. And I said, you know the Malcolm Arnold concerto? Hey, well, he knew who Malcolm Arnold was, but he didn't know the viola concerto. And I had given the North American premiere of it, and I still had a lot of it in my head. I said, Here, yeah, listen to this. Uh, let me play this for you. And he was really impressed because it's, it's, it's a difficult piece. Then I started forgetting it. So I started improvising and just making crap up. And he bought it. I, I could play stuff that sounds like it's really, really difficult. Well, it is difficult if it was written out. You struggle with it. But if you just make it up, it's not difficult. I was playing all these runs and double stops and stuff. And he thought it was great. So they offered me a job. We go back you know, to London, come back to Switzerland, and I'm working. Months later, knock at the door. We had a house, actually. We'd taken over the lease of the principal violist who had left Basel, gone back to Germany with her husband. And he had not paid his taxes. So they come looking for him, and they see me, and they, they say, who are you? And I say, I'm Nick. And they're looking for this other guy. I thought, that's the end of it. A week later, they come back, and they say, would you please come with us? Two guys in uniform. The police are the government. Everything was the same, like passports and stuff go through the police. It's, spelled, it's like police with a Z. They do government stuff, too. So they said, you have to bring your passport. So they take me in their car to downtown Rheinfelden, which was near the little place in the country we were living. And I have to wait for this guy in his office. I go to this office, and there's this, obviously this guy's head honcho. And he's got a, the most magnificent office. It's huge. Beautiful furniture, pictures, and stuff like that. He's sitting behind the desk, and he's, I'm starting to get worried. And he says, you know, uh, Herr Poulos, uh, how do you like our country? And he's making small talk. Uh, do you like this? You like the food, you like the, you know, and what are you doing in this country? I said, well, I'm playing in the orchestra, Basel Orchestra Gesellschaft. I said, ah, I said, oh, do you enjoy the work? He said, yeah, I'm enjoying it. He said, may I see your work permit, please? I said, yeah. like what work permit? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking of stuff like that. He says, and, and I knew as soon as he asked that, because I had a friend who, who's got a wife, they needed nurses in, in 
Switzerland who had been offered a, his wife had been offered a job, but they wouldn't let him into the country because he had long hair and looked like a hippie. And I'm thinking, oh, this is this sounds like it could be a problem. And I said, I don't have my work permit. And they have it, which I thought the orchestra has it. He says, no, they don't. He said, you're in the country, you're working illegally. And I said, oh, crap. And at that moment, and I still know what went through my, the image that went through my head. I'm behind bars, looking out the window, and my wife is driving off with our Peugeot wagon and our little girls in the back window waving goodbye to daddy. I actually had that image flash at that moment. And he said, I want your passport. And all of a sudden, he's looking at the passport, and he's like flipping through it really fast. And and I said, I'm thinking, oh, geez, you know, you know what's going to happen now? He gets to my picture. And he looks at it. He says, you were born in Calgary, Alberta? I said, yeah. He said, have you ever been to the Calgary Stampede? I, I've never been to the Calgary Stampede, actually, even since then. I've never been to it. But the way he said it, he sounded like he, he was really interested in it. And I just wanted to be nice to him. I said, yeah, many times. He said, what's it like? Well, I only knew what I'd seen, you know, uh, these horses and there's a rodeo and it's, oh, it's fantastic. And there's rides and stuff. He said, I've always wanted to go to Calgary Stampede. He said, I love horses. He said, let me show you pictures of horses that he owns. And he says to me, don't worry about it here, Polos, I'll take care of it. So that's how I got that job. And that was the best, one of the best decisions I ever made. And it all happened because I did the European tour, and I got on the European tour because I, I was on that Proco Harem album. Let's say someone wants to know more about the viola and doesn't really know what the viola sounds like. Would you then recommend something? One of the people I always recommend to students is to listen to Tabia Zimmerman because almost everything she does has a, has a wonderful sound to it. I like Pinka Zuckerman's viola playing. There are some new viola players, Timothy Rideout. The most unusual viola player, you either love him or probably hate him, is Cecil Aronowitz, who died quite a few years ago. Cecil Aronowitz was English. He played on a uh, like a $200 viola. Like he played on, on a real piece of crap. There's a famous story of him, David Oistrak, recording something with the, uh, and, and conducting the English Chamber Orchestra, and Cecil was the principal violist. Oistrock, who could play the viola, he played the viola beautifully. He, uh, David Oistrock. Yeah, there's a recording of him, him playing, and you just sort of hear that, and you say, okay, I'm going to quit. Anyways, picking up Cecil and Ronald's viola, saying, how can you play on crap like this? Cecil Ronowitz came to Banff in the 70s. And Tom Ralston arranged for me to go work with him for a weekend. He also arranged for me to work with uh, William Primrose, which was great. And I had him all to myself. And I had Aronowitz. And I knew about Aronowitz from Lawrence Leonard and the Symphony because he had that link with English Chamber Orchestra. He said, Cecil Aronowitz loved music more than anybody else in the world. He said, if you go to his house at a concert, after a concert or something, He'd walk around and play the viola for you. Like he couldn't, there'd be a bunch of people having drinks. Cecil would be walking around. The viola was on his dining room table. He'd just pick it up and play. Have you heard this? And he'd play. And I had these, these you know, lessons and time with him and have lunch and dinner with him and stuff. And I was hoping he was going to say something to me that I could remember for the rest of my life. Like, 
Nick, you know, if, if your heart's in the music, you'll never go wrong. Something that would inspire me for years to come. So it's our last day together. I walked him to his room and we're standing there in, in front of this door and he's going to go in his room. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to see him again. And in fact, he died not too much longer after that. And he hasn't said anything to me. He opens the door and then he stops. He says, oh, Nick, I want to tell you something. And I'm thinking to myself, this is it. This is what I'm waiting for. From this guy who emotes music, li live and breathe music all the time, he says, Nick, whatever you do, always make sure you get paid enough when you play. <laughs> that, that, I, that I did not expect. The parting words from Cecil Aronowitz. Yes. Well, I think that's all the time we have. <laughs> Nick Poulos, violist, teacher, occasional conductor. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Just a few of the highlights of the musical journey of Nick Poulos. and I'll be reading a chapter from my novella, Unlocking. Unlocking is about a woman named Lou who owns a small town hardware store and compulsively cuts copies of her neighbor's keys after the death of her parents. Um, at this point in the book, Lou has separated from her husband and is living in the store with her cat when she finally decides to put the keys to use. So this is chapter six. On New Year's Eve, Lou's 76th day of living in the store. She was about to begin working on the kitchen chair. As she laid out the broken pieces on her work table, she realized that her small toolkit with dowels, glue, and the drill she would need to fix the Martise were not in the store, but at Euphemia's house. She had loaned them to Euphemia a year or so before and hadn't asked for the toolkit to be returned. The rest of her tools were at her old house with Edward. She began to brace herself for her first visit back home when an idea popped into her head. She decided to begin the new year with a brand new plan of attack. Although she'd kept the keys for a year, she'd never put them to use before. Lou held her breath. It would take her only two minutes to get in and out of Euphemia's. It was Thursday night, and she knew Euphemia would be at the town's book club, but she worried that she'd open the front door and find Euphemia with a rolling pin, ready to chase the burglar from her house. Lou resisted the urge to count the potted plants on the windowsill and instead moved toward the door as quickly as she could. She rang the doorbell once and then again, and when no one answered, she slid the key into the lock. Inside, she fought the temptation to run back out the way she'd come in. She reminded herself that this was not a break-in. She was simply entering a friend's home to retrieve what was rightfully hers. Surely, an old friend wouldn't mind if she let herself in to pick up her toolkit. Euphemia need never know. She sat down on the small wooden bench in the entryway to remove her salt-stained boots and breathed in the familiar scent of the house. Her mother used to quote Nabokov. Nothing revives the past so completely as the smell that was once associated with it. The smells of Lou's childhood were pumpkin seeds roasting in the oven, a wooden table warming in the sun, and a strong cup of coffee cooling on the windowsill. Euphemia's house smelled like a combination of Lysol and moist earth. 
When Lou first had been invited to Euphemia's for tea or sangria, she'd struggled to stomach the smell of the plants. The aroma of growth and fermentation was simply too much. She'd been inside Euphemia's house many times, but mostly with Edward when they were invited to dinner. They would reheat leftovers for the twins and shuffle across the street to Euphemia's. Every time Euphemia opened the door, she greeted them with a glass of wine in hand and a flower-covered apron that wrapped around her waist twice. Sitting across the table from Euphemia with Edward to her right, Lou had realized that she wanted to live alone. Euphemia had crow's feet around her eyes, hands hardened from gardening, and a house full of poisonous plants. Lou had never expected to envy that freedom. Lou's children were almost grown and would be leaving for university soon. She didn't want to be left with nothing but her marriage when they went away. Lou put one hand on the banister as she rounded the corner and tried to lighten the sound and pressure of her footsteps. She passed the end table with books stacked up the wall. Nicole Poissard, the same edition of Mauve Desert that Lou had kept beside her bed and now kept beside her cot. Carol Shields, Bell Hooks, Mary Shelley. She reminded herself that she was in the house for a purpose. She glanced at the answering machine. The red light blinked every few seconds. Lou moved towards what Euphemia called her amnesia cupboard, her place for the odds and ends in her home that had nowhere else to go. It was also where she kept her stash of hobnobs, which she was hardly ever without. Since Euphemia hadn't remembered to return the toolkit, the amnesia cupboard was her best bet. Lou rounded the corner and halted with her heart in her throat when she saw Euphemia in the armchair, asleep with her mouth open and a half-eaten pack of hobnobs resting in her lap. As Euphemia breathed, Lou could see each crease and fold in her neck, pleated like an old book. Lou knew that she needed to get out before Euphemia woke up, so no one would ever have to know about her stupid, careless mistake. This could ruin everything, her anonymity, any sense of control she was clinging to, her very trustworthiness within Snowton. Lou was prepared to boil this whole incident down to a moment of insanity, but as she turned to leave, she caught her toe on the corner of the wall with the full force of her body weight behind her, and she swore out loud. She realized her error as soon as the words were out of her mouth, but somehow her exclamation had not roused Euphemia from sleep. Lou should have been discovered as soon as she cried out, which should have been followed by a look of shocked confusion on Euphemia's face. The hobnobs should have fallen, a hand should have grabbed the rolling pin, but none of this happened. You heard Amy LeBlanc reading from Unlocking, published by the University of Calgary Press. Link in the show notes. You can also find it, as the phrase goes, wherever fine books are sold. Perhaps Shelf Life Books on 4th Street Southwest, Calgary. Remember to check Culture Monsters' social media for your chance to win a copy of the book. Next time, I speak with Calgary Philharmonic CEO Paul Dornian about his life and career. This has been Culture Monster. I am Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening.